this second part of our look at how fear profoundly influences our mindset and behaviours, we continue to consider what this emotion can tell us about ourselves and where the opportunities are for growth and better judgment. So let's join Scott. Hi friends, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. John, how have you been feeling since the first half of our discussion on the nine types of fear? Well, thank you for asking. I would say anxious, bewildered, and (laughs) self-conscious. Well, that's exactly what I was going for, so that means you're doing the hard work. Oh, good. So how are you feeling, Scott? Well, a little better than you. I'm feeling energized, excited to jump back into this conversation. I've actually been self-observing a little bit um, of when some of my core fears have been surfacing a little bit, just having brought this more to the forefront of my own consciousness. So I'm excited to talk about the rest. Good. Should I, should I just go ahead and jump back in? Let's do it. Okay. So if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to do that before you listen to this episode. Uh, and if you have listened to it, then as a reminder, uh, the first four types of fear we talked about were the fear of not being good enough. Number two, the fear of being unloved, unwanted, or unneeded. Three is the fear of worthlessness. And four was the fear of having no personal identity or significance. Our fifth type of fear is a fear of incompetence. This is similar to the first fear we discussed, the fear of not being good enough. Um, But the fear of incompetence is all about mental incompetence. It's a fear of not knowing enough. Um, A leader with this type of fear tends to be a withdrawing type. Um, They tend to disconnect from feeling and are incredibly cerebral as a way of not getting overwhelmed by things, especially by any surprises. Um, What's driving this fear is a fixed mindset that tells them that there are limits everywhere and that everything they possess, energy, information, affections, are all finite And they don't know when they will need these internal resources, so they hoard them, almost like being well-prepared in case of an emotional apocalypse. (laughs) Um, So so they sort of stay in their heads. Uh, They don't want to be surprised, like I said, and so they want to know the agenda for every meeting, and they don't want you to intrude on their time. Um, They're actually quite sensitive people with a ton to offer, but the fear of this impending impoverishment leads to a fear of feeling itself. Um, They can therefore seem really distant and unavailable to their teams and or overvalue those who are cerebral like they are and be unintentionally dismissive of those who use feeling language at work or any other type of intelligence that isn't aligned with how they understand the world to be. Um, This fear can be leveraged in positive ways in that They're motivated to break everything down into component parts until they are understood completely, which is good for solving complex business challenges, but can hamper innovation where sometimes being 70% or 80% certain is good enough to take a next step. Um, But when they've grown in self-awareness, this fear lessens and they become uh, more open to feelings and uh, diverse perspectives. I love the phrase emotional apocalypse and preparing for it because in common with some of your other points that they're actually probably, you know, creating or sowing the seeds of the very thing that they fear. And I, I, I don't mm. know if this is true, but, you know, it strikes me to some extent that this might be my nemesis, Scott, in part because mm. 
this kind of fear um, creates a world where half the world is excluded and denied to them, which is both sad, but it's also not what a leader should be. And I think, you know, the smarter that kind of person is, the more effective they are at wielding incredibly powerful and often excreting arguments to justify their worldview, and they leave the people around them feeling devalued as a result. Hmm. You know, I hadn't looked at it that way, but that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's interesting. And it's also interesting how we, we each kind of have our own core fear, but often someone else's core fear is something of a trigger for us, um, mm. which, like I said at the beginning, can sometimes be information that there's something in that person's behavior that is actually true in us as well. Or it could just be that it's too different or opposite for how we perceive the world to be, and it creates a, a friction that we're not comfortable with. So that's really interesting. Which one do you think is your... Your nemesis or the one that, that would create that response in you? I'll tell you when you're older. Okay. Actually, <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet, so you will be older when I tell you, but not much older. It's coming. I'll tell you in momentarily when we get there. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like a little tiny bit older. A little tiny bit older, yeah. That was, a oh. good, that was my first attempt at a little teaser, you know, hook you in, <laughs> keep, you, keep you paying attention to me. Uh, so the sixth type of fear is rooted in a core belief that if something can go wrong, it probably will. And so we call this a fear of being without support or guidance. Um, the leader with this core fear doesn't question if the glass is half full or half empty. It's kind of a belief that the glass is going to break either way. Um, they are worst case scenario leaders who have a tendency to want to test and retest an idea or a project or a solution again and again and again before moving forward. Um, if they haven't identified every possible pitfall that could happen, they don't want to take action. It's a little bit like the previous type of fear we just discussed. However, this fear is a more is more generalized to all possible risks, whereas the previous fear is more rooted in um, a sense of that impending impoverishment, that sense of limitation. And now the person with a fear rooted in this worst-case scenario thinking can actually be hugely helpful when surrounded by the type of people who aren't particularly mindful of risk at all or who are motivated from the rush of gambling. Um, I personally like having a bit of worst-case scenario thinking in the room with me because I don't always see around those corners. Um, I can get really enthusiastic, and having this person on my team could bring me a lot of healthy balance. Um, however, analysis paralysis tendencies can become problematic for the pace of today's business. Um, who need to be agile and move quickly. So this core fear can hamper um, a team's creativity and blue sky thinking ability. Sometimes, sometimes it's not the time for calling out the risks. Sometimes it's the time for calling out all the possibilities first. And I've seen in the growth accelerator work we do when we're building growth engines for companies, um, partnering these people with their their opposite number can can build an amazing creative partnership. You know, if they're, if they're teamed with an entrepreneur, it can often lead to the kind of outputs you're talking about, kind of balance, but also a maturing and developing of these kind of people past their fears. Mm. So we are up to our seventh type of fear in our fear marathon. Yes, and our seventh type of fear is rooted in a core belief that if I let sadness or other negative feelings in into my inner world, they may never leave me. They may never go away. And we're calling this the fear of deprivation or of being trapped. Um, 
These folks fear being limited because if they're limited, then the negativity of life may take hold of them. So this creates a leader who seems to be relentlessly pursuing fun, creative, innovative, and inspiring opportunities for the team and the business. So this fear is hard to critique um, because you know leaders with this core fear tend to lead very fun teams. Um, however, when they're not aware of this core fear, they can relentlessly and sometimes even recklessly pursue opportunity, continually chasing the next fun and exciting project at the exclusion of pragmatism. Uh, it can mean that the leader will avoid looking at possible pitfalls. So kind of the exact opposite of the person um, that we just talked about in our sixth type of fear. These leaders are visionary, but they tend to underserve their team's day-to-day needs because slowing down enough to actually be present with people in real time might mean that that sort of sadness or boredom that they so desperately want to avoid could catch up with them. So they just keep moving. It's literally a running from fear in the shoes of optimism. This overly optimistic type is actually very afraid. However, they tend to be very disconnected with it and you know, deny the fear, you know, push it way down and just move towards optimism, like I said. So this overly optimistic type, when they actually take the time to self-observe and slow down a little bit, they stop believing that they need to run after the next big thing in order to feel safe. What strikes me about this is that, you know, this this type of um, fear undermines accountability Hmm. Um, because if, if, you're not aware of being trapped, then you can confuse this idea of freedom and creativity um, with being, you know, a good thing. But actually, it doesn't. It, that that also comes with accountability. And I absolutely love optimism. I love people who say, "What if?" and "Why not give it a go?" I hope you know I'm I'm one of those people. But Al Gore said, "You know, optimism without engagement is passive aggression to the future." Hmm. And that's so wasteful at a time when positive energy needs to be channeled into the really big problems facing our future. Mm, I love that. Passive aggression to the future. Man, that's good. (laughs) Um, So, you know, what this type needs to do, uh, all types need to do this. Um, But particularly for this type, I would encourage encourage them to develop a practice of mindfulness. You know, again, each of us benefits from that, of course, but they need to calm their minds and embrace moderation. They need to just practice sitting still, uh, committing to doing less, especially when life feels boring, and then begin to notice that things are okay. Um, The self-observation will lead you to recognizing that you are, in fact, still safe. Okay, so... Our eighth type of fear is a fear of being controlled or vulnerable uh, because being vulnerable means they risk being controlled by others. So instead of being controlled, they choose to take control. This then often motivates them to be in very senior roles so they can have power and uh, control over things and people and systems. Um, They tend to be uh, so afraid of vulnerability when they haven't done their self-development work that they often show up as very intense and intimidating. They can look very angry, though they don't tend to self-identify as angry. To them, it's passion. 
Um, and in lower levels of self-awareness, this passion can overshadow all their other uh, softer and more nuanced feelings. Fear of weakness and uh, vulnerability means that this type of leader covets truth-telling above all other values because not knowing the truth puts them in a vulnerable position. Um, however, if you know someone who's motivated by this fear, any truth you have to say to them that is about them must be said to them privately because remember, they don't want to look weak or vulnerable. So any public embarrassment must be avoided. So when you get this type of leader shaping the culture, any truth that isn't the leader's truth, it gets trammeled and it, it can lead to a culture where ethical transgressions get hidden and you know, like the type of emission scandal at VW starts to happen. Hmm. You know, I'll just point out again uh, where the f- core fear can produce the very result we're trying to avoid. Um, I'm kind of sounding like a broken record at this point, but it's worth mentioning. Because um, I, I know that those with the core fear of being controlled covet honesty so much because knowing the truth protects them. Um, and they're not afraid... Uh, and often sometimes are motivated to be intense and start conflict because surfacing conflicts surfaces hidden agendas. Um, Mm. But that's interesting because I can see that being the quote-unquote owner of truth can create a bias in them potentially that has them holding their truth so tightly that they unintentionally exclude truths that don't align with theirs. Um, For example, the truth that charging hard and taking control uh, maybe intimidating to others in the organization and creating all sorts of morale and engagement problems, but they're ignoring that truth. Is that kind of aligned with what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, you know, the point, I suppose, when you look at the VW scandal was that, um, you know, that was a culture shaped by fear, hmm. fear of um, underperforming, of not having the answers immediately, of not... Um, yeah, having having facts at your fingertips, and uh, that then leads to people second guessing um, and trying to protect themselves. Mm. Uh, ultimately, not telling the truth. So, by being so demanding in that respect, not creating safety around it, then you get the opposite of what you want, and then people hide hide the truth. Mm. That's so interesting. Okay, so we're up to the ninth and final type of fear. Uh, This one, uh, just in the spirit of transparency and because you asked, uh, is, uh, was, I should say, was my nemesis, the one that triggered me the most, and I'll tell you more about why as we talk through it. Um, And this fear is the fear of conflict. Um, People motivated by this fear aren't seen as fearful, but as wonderful democratic consensus builders. Um, They're incredibly diplomatic and inclusive. Uh, which are fantastic traits to have in business, of course. However, when their diplomacy gets overused, they can sometimes be seen as indecisive and unwilling to lead or take action. Um, They tend to minimize their own importance and get stuck in safe, predictable routines as a tactic to avoid acting on their own personal agendas for fear that if they speak up and articulate what it is they want personally, it may cause conflict. Um, However, in my experience, um, they may not assert their agenda over you, but they also don't want uh, you to assert your agenda over them. So this fear of conflict can lead to an avoidance of honest discussion 
and can produce a sort of passive aggressive behavior. So you may leave a meeting with a person who's driven by this fear and think you've got consensus and agreement. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a week later, they haven't done the thing that you think you've agreed to do. But if you look back on it, they didn't really ever explicitly agree. They just didn't disagree because they didn't want to have a conflict with you. But they may not have it had, may not have had any intention of doing the thing that, that you wanted from them. Um, once upon a time, this was my uh, trigger. This was my trigger type. But I fall into the camp uh, that I cautioned people about earlier, which is what was triggering me is some denied aspects of this fear that lived in me. It wasn't my core fear, but there was truths about how this type sees the world and how they operate in it that were really kind of repressed areas in my own um, life. And so it took a lot of uncovering that and surfacing that to be able to recognize that. And once I did and started doing the, the, the work associated with that, of kind of, you know, loosening my grip on those, on those areas, um, then this type doesn't frustrate me anymore. I can understand it better and, and I don't get triggered. And I think your cage fighting ability is significantly improved as a result of overcoming this fear. Me too. Totally. Yeah. So Scott, that was a smorgasbord of fear, but in a really good way. Um, Margaret Heffernan, a wonderful woman um, who wrote in her book, Willful Blindness, she, she describes how so many cultures are shaped by a profound inability for people to talk about things that are hindering progress and the organization's stated aims. It's almost like, you know, the, um, the fears at a, at a kind of organizational levels. And she describes a collective sense of futility as being how people experience it. And I think what we've outlined here, Scott, is, or what you've outlined here, is a, a diagnostic framework for leaders to confront what is probably one of the most important reasons holding them back and their organizations back. Hmm. Good. Well, so let's talk about a bit of homework and how hmm. uh, to take this away. Um, my friend and author Ian Cron uses a model that's easy to remember and a very practical way for starting to build the practice of self-observation, which uh, will lead us to radical self-awareness. And it's, uh, it's an acronym called SNAP, uh, S-N-A-P, and it stands for Stop, Notice, Ask, and Pivot, um, or you can also substitute Proceed. So stop. The first thing that's required, regardless of which of these core fears re you resonate with the most, the first thing you need to do is to really connect with what is happening inside of you in a conscious way. And so the way we need to do that First is to kind of stop moving long enough. Um, and I'm talking to even the types that aren't um, particularly, you know, high energy, um, you know, always moving forward, chasing things. I, I'm, I'm talking stopping and breaking from normal routines and activities in that sort of unconscious way we tend to all go through our days um, and bring conscious thought uh, to what's happening around you. And, and that leads us to notice. Um, like we said, you can't just think about yourself more if you want to build self-awareness. You need to actually observe. So with an inner witness um, and without omitting anything and without any judgment, simply acknowledge what it is that's happening. Not what should be happening or what you tell yourself is happening, but notice what is. And I really need to emphasize, do this without any self-criticism. 
Um, the key to growth is not going to be self-shaming. It's going to be uh, embracing and befriending ourselves and kind of understanding and navigating and investigating, you know, what's behind this? Why is this fear so dominant in me? Where did that come from? And what self-limiting beliefs am I carrying around? Which is actually, I'm kind of already begun the transition into ask. Um, and that's really, you know, that, again, asking where did this come from? But asking also, is my thinking objective? Is what I'm feeling right now objectively true? The experience of the feeling is true, but is what I'm telling myself as a result true? Am I acting from a conscious, healthy place or from a place of fear and reactivity and autopilot? And then from there, you have more of a conscious choice now. You've created more space between stimulus and response. You now can proceed or you can pivot and change directions. You know, Whatever direction you were heading in, you now have the ability to go somewhere else of your choosing. Um, you can move now towards a desired outcome in a thoughtful, responsive way and loosen the grip that fear has on you and your decisions and your team. Mm. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, that's a really pragmatic way to get us started towards moving uh, beyond our fear. And I love this kind of almost visual way of thinking of the grip that fear has on me being loosened. And, you know, I can, I can feel the visceral nature of that. Mm. So until next time, remember, the world is changing for you. Thank you.